You're listening to the Sexual Wellness Sessions with Kate Moyle. This episode was sponsored by iPlaySafe, the new app that's removing the ick from sharing STI test results with potential partners. Download the free, medically approved app to order your home STI testing kit, and your results will be sent directly to your app verifying your sexual health status. It's then up to you when and with whom and whether you share it. The free app also gives you access to articles, podcasts and sexual education content. And you can find them on Instagram at iPlaySafe app. Join the iPlaySafe community today. My guest today is Cam Fraser, who is someone who I had a lot of messages from men saying this is the male voice that you should get on to the sexual wellness sessions and how much they were relating to his content. And Cam is a certified professional sex coach, sexologist, counsellor and registered tantric yoga teacher. And what he described to me is that so much of his work is about integrating East and West, you know, science, research-based information, mental health information and also tantra spirituality and connectedness and this whole idea of instead of us separating out the two us bringing it all together to create this more holistic approach to particularly tackling sex which Cam I know that you know I love to talk about and I personally feel is really important because we have lived constantly with this medical model of sex and this medical approach to sex and clearly you know, I think it's contributed massively to our culture around sex being quite broken. Mm. And today we are going to be tackling the conversation around masculinity messages and sex, what we think the biggest hurdles are for men when it comes to thinking about sex, to improving sexual wellness, to talking about sex, to thinking about sex. And I think that we see these very gendered messages around sex and sexuality anyway. And we don't often have as much or as big a space for the male side of the conversation. And, you know, for me, I know that you are one of the main men doing that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I am. I often say with the most compassion possible that, you know, your mainstream dudes are the the, the demographic of people that need the sexuality work the most, you know, the the. Straight white dudes like myself are the ones that a lot of sexuality-related work hasn't necessarily been geared towards, uh, and I've found that you know that's a, a huge group of people. It's a huge demographic of people, um, and they they sorely need some you know holistic, comprehensive sex education. Um, and that's the 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 niche or the void that I'm trying to fill in some small way, I suppose. Mm. And I think what's interesting is something you're very vocal about and you show a lot on your Instagram and your platform is that you get a lot of pushback Mm. for that. And as you were saying to me before, you're talking to the lived experience that you have as a cis, white, heterosexual male and you're saying, okay, this is my experience and I'm trying to show my learning from that. But actually the you get a lot of pushback and a lot of questioning from people and a lot of why do we need to do this and why are we having this conversation? Why is this important? 
And I think that kind of demonstrates the point incredibly <laughs> well. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I think um, the reason why I get pushback is because I challenge a lot of like assumptions about what it means to be a man, speci- like specifically stereotypically Western masculinity. Um, you know, I, I tend to be relatively vulnerable online and in terms of like talking about my own experiences around sexual dysfunction and, you know, connecting to my intimate partner, being a father and things like this, um, stuff that's like not historically hasn't been really encouraged for, for straight dudes. And, um, and so when I talk about things, especially like when I talk about being vulnerable and opening up and leaning into, uh, that kind of experience, I get a lot of like, uh, I'd say homophobic and misogynistic comments, essentially, um, like Mm. saying, oh, that's so gay, um, which, you know, makes me laugh half the time because the the internalized, you know, hoops that these people must be, you know, jumping through in terms of their logic, because I'm talking about how to be vulnerable so that you can have better sex with women. And then these guys turn around and say, oh, that's so gay. Mm. It just makes li- like zero sense no to me sense. logically. So, um, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's like they're, they're, they're warped perception of like what masculinity and, and sexuality is from that kind of like space of homophobia and misogyny. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, um, it, like you said, it really highlights like the work that still needs to be done, I think. And, um, and you know, it's, it's slowly shifted when I first started doing, I, I mean, this work, when I first started being open about things online, um, yeah, received probably, um, more, oh, I don't know. I think, you know, it, it's kind of stayed even, but I received more, uh, pushback, uh, in terms of, you know, disproportionality when I was, uh, a smaller, kind of influence in the online space as opposed to now. I think I've gotten, um, you know, a lot more positive reception now that I've been speaking about it for the last five to seven years. Um, and that's been really lovely to find a, a group of sex positive, pleasure positive people. But I often forget that I kind of live in a little sex positive, pleasure positive bubble sometimes. Mm. And when my content uh, breaches that bubble and goes out into like the mainstream world, I'm like, oh, there's people out there that still exist that uh, aren't super appreciative of, of, you know, these conversations. So, um, mm. yeah, it's, 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 it's a good reminder sometimes when that happens. Cause I'm like, great, there's still some work to do. I'm still going to have a job. Yeah. I always forget that as well. And then I'll be talking to someone that I've never met before and I register the shock on their face <laughs> <laughs> as I'm just kind of chatting away quite happily. And, um, I forget because a, the people in my personal life who are around me who aren't in that world are just kind of immune. I think now to me banging on, and then all of the friends that are in the world with me or colleagues in the world with me, we're all just nodding along together. And I forget, actually. And I think that what's interesting that you're saying there is you're not expecting 100% of everyone to be on board with you immediately. But actually what you're moving towards, I suppose, is a balance of more positive reactions than negative reactions. And what we'll hopefully see is a moving towards that tipping point or moving towards that becoming the majority. And that's okay because we are pushing back doing the kind of work that we'll do on hundreds of years of negative sexual messages or of these narratives. And we can't expect it all to shift overnight. Mm. I I definitely don't feel like we should expect it all to shift overnight because it's very ingrained, isn't it? All this stuff is really embedded. Yeah, very much so. I mean, even me personally, I've I've only been alive for... You know, about 30 years and um 
the the shift that I've had to make is still happening. You know, I'm still learning. I'm still mm-hmm. um, unpacking internalized homophobia. You know, um, compulsive heterosexuality, things like that. It's just it's still part of that was part of my upbringing. It's still part of me at some level. Um, you know, I can talk about my my own lived experiences as we kind of go through this conversation, but it's still something that I'm still unlearning. And you know, part of my part of my um, current learnings, I suppose, is around like uh, racism and anti-racism, and and learning a bit more about um, just like how my experience as a white dude is um, not necessarily comparable to um, you know some of the clients that I have that are uh, black men or are Indian men or are, you know men of color. So um it's it's yeah so it's still it's it's an it's a lifetime ongoing process and and you know i I think because there's been a shift in you know mainstream acceptability of talking about sex and um talking about pleasure and and like just kind of challenging things in terms of like you know the binary and the constructs around gender and sexuality like i think that the needle has shifted Um, i'm definitely like seeing you know at a kind of macro level um a shift in uh in people kind of moving towards being a bit more open about sexuality but it's interesting as well like i always think of um this idea of dualism like the more we kind of talk about sexuality and pleasure and more open we're about it and like the 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 more positive there is there's also going to be an equal and opposite reaction right of people kind of being like quite negative about it and quite reactionary to it and and trying to um denigrate it and dismiss it and belittle it and have this like really negative reaction Mm. as well so like the more we talk about it the more people are going to be really positive about it but also the more we talk about it the the stronger those negative reactions are going to get do you think it's impossible for us to imagine that there will ever not be the flip side because i guess sometimes i also think that it shows we're making an impact that people want to fight it so much yeah what's that saying like if you don't have haters then you're not doing a good job or something like that I, and i think that's like i think that's pretty fair to say you know and i you know to speak into that question i think it's a it's quite a philosophical question is can we ever expect there to not be anyone that like you know pushes back against you know those kind of open progressive ideas of of sexuality and pleasure and i if i'm totally frank and totally honest like i think there'll always be those people i don't think that we'll ever get to a utopian ideal of this society where everyone shares the same beliefs because I don't think that's how human beings work. Yeah, um, I agree. And so I always think there'll be a fraction or a portion of people that will always be not for, you know, these ideas of, of open sexuality and things like that. Mm, yeah, I completely agree. And I think an interesting part of our conversation is that we're going to focus it around male experience or male sexuality or male sexual narratives and for me I think it's hugely important because I think we've come a hugely long way in talking about female sexuality in a pretty short space of time and we know that obviously there was huge change almost overnight with the invention of the contraceptive pill for female sexuality in that women were able to actively and choose to prevent themselves against, um, protect themselves against unwanted pregnancy. And that was massive. But male sexuality still, I think, is a more taboo topic in mainstream culture in that we've seen masses of PR and attention around female sex toys and female pleasure products. And it does feel like it's bringing female um, sexuality up to kind of where it needs to be to a degree. 
And we've seen that erectile dysfunction gets quite talked about. And for example, in the UK, we can get erectile dysfunction medications without prescription now, on subscription, they're advertised on the underground. Um, it That's kind of there. But the pleasure side of it, not so much. The medicalized side, yes. But the other side of it, not. And something I wanted to unpack, which I think is a good place to start this conversation, to kind of wind it all into it, is you described to me this idea of man box culture. And I really wanted to kind of unpack that because I think... I mean, I personally believe that underneath all of our discomfort or not quite functioning right in my small, humble opinion, sexual narratives is that these underlying messages at the bottom are the kind of soil that all of this stuff is growing out of. Mm. And within that, not only do we have the messages about sex and what is inverted commas good sex or bad sex or right sex or wrong sex, um, but we then also have these ideas about how men should have sex and how women should have sex. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, um, there's kind of like a, a lot of shooting going on, right? Like oh, sex so I mean, should look like this <laughs> and um, sex should include this. And I, I um, yeah, so I like this idea of the man box culture because that kind of sums up this idea of like, this is what you should look like as a man. Um, so this the man box culture or man box um, idea uh, come, uh, it's actually the full name of it is the act like a man box. And it comes from an activist called Paul Kivel uh, from the 1980s in uh, Oklahoma and California. And he, he speaks about, um, he speaks about this idea that there's this unwritten set of rules about what it means to be a man and boys as they grow up, learn these unwritten or unspoken rules by virtue of just being in our society. Um, and so these unwritten rules, when you start to kind of like scratch at the surface on them, and I do this in workshops with men, is I get them to think of like, what does it stereotypically mean to quote unquote, be a man? And uh, some of the things that come to mind are like, you've got to be tall, you've got to be muscular, you've got to be heterosexual, you've got to have a high paying job, you've got to uh, be assertive, uh, you've got to be dominant, you've got to be a, um, you know, uh, I mean, in terms of when it comes to sex as well, you've got to like, you know, have a big dick. Uh, you've got to be, you know, the, the uh, penetrative partner or, you know, there's very stereotypically, like if you can think of the stereotypical masculine ideal, like then that's typically what the, the unri unwritten set of rules are. And so the idea is like, well, that those rules or those parameters have created a box for men to fit into. And for a lot of men who don't fit into this box, they feel very anxious. They feel very um, like their self-worth is not, uh, and their self-esteem is not very high because they're, they're not considered a quote unquote real man. And and oftentimes not only is the, are those unwritten rules descriptive, they're also prescriptive as well. Meaning that like if a man doesn't follow those, then he'll get um, his quote unquote man card taken away from him, right? He'll he'll be outside of the box. So if he does something that's considered effeminate or feminine or womanly or not manly, that doesn't follow those rules, then he'll he's then positioned outside of that box, and he oftentimes gets belittled or bullied. Mm. Um, and usually, the language that's used to bully him um, verbally is. Um, language that denigrates femininity, right? You're a pussy or you're a mama's boy or you're 
uh, you're, you're gay, right? And again, gay being equated to effeminacy. Um, and so and so we can kind of see then how uh, femininity is, um, you know, something that's bad, right? For a lot of men mm-hmm. um, and expressing any feminineness is bad. Um, and, uh, and so what a lot of guys do is when they feel like they're outside of that man box is they do something hyper-masculine in order to get back in the box to stop being bullied, right? It's, it's a survival response essentially to stop being called names, to stop being ostracized. Uh, and that hyper-masculine display typically looks like aggression, looks like violence. It looks like, um, you know, being uh, you know, subordinating someone else essentially, like they become the bully so that they're, therefore they're not bullied anymore and they they end up being back in the in the man box. And that's definitely been true for me. I was um, bullied as a, as a teenager for, um, you know, people perceived me to be gay. I had, a, I had a gay best friend and so I was gay by association and I was not stereotypically really like, you know, macho and things like that. And so, um, so I was bullied for being quote unquote gay or, or being a, a wuss or whatever. Uh, and so in order for me to stop being bullied and, and in order for me to kind of be part of the kind of, you know, men's club again, or the, be part of that man box again, I ended up bullying. Um, and it's something that I, you know, deeply regret is like leaning into that and, and, um, and perpetuating that. I mean, it's a, obviously something I've had to work on, but, um, but that's a very common experience for a lot of guys is that feeling of not being part of the the man club or, or having their man card revoked. Um, and what I've noticed is like, how a lot of men frame the man box today, whether they kind of consciously think about this or not, is like they've seen a lot of, as you beautifully mentioned, progression, let's say, in um, women's sexuality and women's liberation. And, you know, with the the there's several waves of feminism, we've seen like a really um, necessary and beautiful increase in women being able to like have agency over themselves essentially and kind of step into a lot of other areas of the world that they traditionally and historically weren't necessarily allowed into. And so what that has created for a lot of men internally is that man box is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller because really for a lot of guys, masculinity is not really clearly defined. It's only really vaguely defined as anything that isn't feminine, right? So femininity is all this stuff over here and then whatever's left over is masculinity and so because guys have like you know a lot of men are perceiving femininity to now be all of this stuff because they've seen women being able to enter into all these areas of life they feel that masculinity is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and so this box that they're supposed to fit in is is now tinier and tinier and tinier um which is causing a lot more anxiety for a lot of men without them realizing that the box itself it's what's causing them anxiety and their rigid ideals of masculinity is what's causing that anxiety in the first place and if they are able to deconstruct that and unpack it and actually go, well, who fucking cares, right? What does masculinity mean for me? And can I embody that? Mm. Then they'll be a lot more self-confident and, and their self-worth and their, uh, you know, their security in their masculinity will feel a lot more, um, you know, will have a lot more integrity and a lot more um, kind of in, like the embodiedness of it will be a lot more stronger. So um, that's kind of what I've noticed as well is like, there's a, there's a, a good fraction of men who feel like they're, what it means to be a man is, is like getting, smaller and smaller um because of like how many strides we've seen in women's in the women's movement um and they th- and so they feel threatened by it essentially is is kind of what's happening um yeah i, I could go on more but I, i'm going to stop there no no i think it's really interesting because also there's a lot of judgment on well on everything everything you've mentioned there for me 
feels like it holds a lot of judgment and everything from men's height, for example, to phrases that we hear like dad bod or, um, you know, this idea about men. You know, we see, we see it quite a lot, don't we? We often see this idea of, not even this idea, this reality of people overcompensating in some way with really bulking up at the gym. So the was the really skinny kid turns into the absolute beefcake and you talk to those people and they do know that it was because they wanted to take themselves out of where they were. It was a way of transporting themselves and a way of being different or showing the world that they were different. And in no way when I'm saying that someone's gone through that process is that in any way judgment laden. I guess it's just from the people that I've spoken to and worked with that there was this sense of, okay, well, how do I make myself feel this way? Or how do I get the world around me to respond to me Mm. in a way which is that I am more masculine? I think what happens is the hope with lots of these things is that with the changes that we make like that, which are very physical, is I want to feel differently about myself, but the way that we feel differently about ourselves is that we are treated differently by the world around us and we think that that will then make us feel different. But Mm. as a psychologist, what I guess I notice is that often people go through all those changes and then they are disappointed because they do still feel the same. Yeah. And I think that is an important part of this conversation because when it comes to sex, I work with a lot of particularly younger men, so I suppose men in their 20s and 30s, who cannot shift the anxiety, the fear, the self-image, the fear of being vulnerable, not performing, inverted commas, not performing, and all of those ideas about what it is to be a man in the bedroom, there's nowhere to hide. And so in the rest of their lives, they can cover up how they're feeling or manipulate their whether it's body or context or work situation or friendship groups or job, whatever it is, they can be in control and they can make everything work in order that it doesn't trigger those anxieties or they can avoid situations which they know won't make them feel that way or put themselves in situations where they feel better about themselves. But when it comes to sex there suddenly isn't anywhere to hide. And Mm. because of these messages that we have around sex, which are very linear, which are sex equals intercourse, which is Oxford Dictionary definition, penis in vagina penetration. Mm. And so a lot of the young men, particularly that I'm working with, are going into this situation with the crippling pressure of all I have to do is have enough of an erection and maintain that erection to the point of ejaculation or orgasm by having sex with my if they are in um, a different sex relationship, opposite sex partner, and then I've done my job, done. Mm. Goal achieved, success, great. That is such a narrow version of sex that doesn't really serve that many people because, again, a lot of the guys that I'm working with who are dealing with that kind of thing, they're not really enjoying themselves because the focus is on performance and not pleasure. And the irony of that is the more they focus on the performance the less they experience the pleasure. And actually the pleasure is the thing that's going to naturally maintain arousal, erections, achieve orgasm, connect them with their partner if that's what they're hoping to get from the experience, but have a good time. Mm. 
And so then, particularly if they might be someone who's taking things like PDE5 inhibitors, so Cialis or Viagra, two inverted commas, get the job done, then it doesn't feel satisfying. And there is a sense of a kind of emptiness around the sexual experience. And it feels a bit like tick box sex. And I guess Mm. we are, you know, the man box culture, I guess I'm wondering about the kind of sex man box, which is like an offshoot of what you're describing. Because a lot of these, you know, anecdotally, I'm talking about men that I've worked with, but I know from, you know, my training and listening to people and reading books and blogs and listening to podcasts is it's it's not a fulfilling sexual experience. It's actually quite an anxiety-provoking one. It's very goal-driven, very pressurised, and it's not really helping anyone. Mm. And we've got these two strands here then, one which is the narratives about how to be a man having sex, and then we have this mainstream problematic idea or very limited definition of what sex is, and I think it's the combining of these two things. Yeah, definitely. There was so much there that I was resonating with and and you know something that i i think is really beneficial for like cis men is to learn about trans men's experience with regards to like performing masculinity right because a lot of the trans men that i've spoken to from what i understand there's a a significant portion of um trans men that go through a period of like really trying to be hyper masculine to be perceived as a a man in our society and i feel like a lot of cis men do a pretty similar thing they try like especially a lot of younger guys will try and be really perceived as a real man and they'll do things to make them you know be perceived by society as a real man um and so i think there's a lot of learning um that cis guys can can have from from trans men in terms of that idea of like trying to fit what society deems as you know masculine um and that you're right like is in entwined with kind of mainstream ideas that we have about what sex again should look like and and we can blame pornography that for that we can blame terrible sex education for that we can just you know we can blame a lot of things but what what essentially needs to happen is we need to like firstly expand and broaden our understanding of what sex is like that's um Mm. something that i do with a lot of the men that i work with is just like firstly you know break down what their definition of sex is um because if 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 sex has to equal this um which is like penis and vagina sex uh, which it does for a lot of guys that's how they frame sex and and also for a lot of you know the heterosexual men that i work with that's how their partners also experience sex like women Mm. get the same messages about men and sex that men get um so they also hold these stereotypes about what it means to be a man and so like not only a lot of these guys that i work with overcoming their own beliefs about masculinity but they've also really then got to challenge their partner's beliefs about masculinity as well and so that's a whole dyadic approach as well um but but yeah so the first thing i do with clients these guys that i work with is like you know um i talked about phallocentrism essentially like and if we talk about like man box as it applies to sex it's a very phallocentric approach to sex and what i essentially mean by that is like sex is really dependent upon what the penis can or can't or does and doesn't do right does it Mm -hmm. get erect if so then sex is you know able to be you know move forward if it doesn't get erect then sex isn't happening right if the penis uh, ejaculates then um, sex is you know successful Uh, if it doesn't ejaculate then something's wrong right if uh, or if it ejaculates too quickly then sex is over uh, if it you know if it ejaculates later then you know and so it's all based around whether his penis is 
quote unquote working or not. And so for a lot of guys, because they're, uh, again, quite anxious about being perceived as a man sexually as well, we know that that anxiety mentally, emotionally manifests as um, ejaculating quite quickly or the alternative, not being able to get or maintain an erection, um, you know, premature ejaculation and erectile dysfunction being two sides of the same coin and that coin being anxiety essentially mm-hmm. um, for the most part, unless there's some other medical stuff going on. Um, and so guys are really in their head about like, oh God, sex needs to look like this. I've got to be penetrative. I've got to make sure I've got a high erection. I've got to make sure that I don't come too quickly. I've got to make sure that I give my partner lots of orgasms. I've got to make sure that I'm the dominant assertive person. I've got to take control, right? Because there's a story here that men are the knowledgeable active participants in sex and women are the you know, um, innocent, uh, passive participants in sex, right? It's a very old school, you know, old paradigm story that a lot of people cling to, right? And so, um, and so guys also feel this pressure of like having to be the person who's in charge. Um, and that strips agency of their partners, for example, and, and it's detrimental to, to everyone kind of involved if it's not unpacked. Um, but that, yeah, manifests as guys having a shit ton of performance anxiety and not really knowing what to do about it uh, because no one's really talking about sex and sexuality. And very typically the way men talk with other men about sex and sexuality is very surface level. Uh, it's very uh, performance oriented. Uh, so I've been in, I was, a, I was a collegiate athlete in America. I've been in locker rooms. I've spoken to lots of different groups of men when it comes to sex and sexuality and pleasure. And a lot of men minimize their experience of pleasure minimize their the the emotional aspects of sex the vulnerable intimate uh, meaningful aspects of sex and then when they speak about it with other guys it's all yeah i busted the biggest nut you know i you know lasted this long i made her scream she was such a scream like it's all very uh like it all the the language that they use to describe their sex is all very performative it's all like this is what it looks like not this is how it made me feel and this is what was the um the deeper meaning and experience of it uh, and so you know something that i i used to get i don't really get anymore but something that i used to get when i was talking online to kind of bring it back into that conversation was you know i'd speak about you know male sexuality um, and i'd speak about masturbation and how men can masturbate and and change the way that they're self-pleasuring and i'd get some comments from women saying women masturbate too why aren't you talking about you know female sexuality and it made me think i was like you know, the way that men typically speak about sex and sexuality, yes, we speak about it more. It's kind of joked about more in media and it's kind of mentioned more. We kind of talk about, you know, premature ejaculation, erectile dysfunction is quite common. But the way that we talk about it, I don't think is something to aspire to. And so, you know, the so these, you know, and that's what I would kind of share with these women. It's like, yeah, we we should be talking more about female sexuality. We should be talking about, but not in the same way that we're talking about male sexuality at the moment. That's not an example. It's not a good example for the way that we should be talking about it. We need to be talking about, you know, sexuality in general, both male, female, and everything in between more holistically and more from an embodied sense and, and demedicalizing it and depathologizing it. Um, so yes, we, we talk about male sexuality a lot more, but it's, it's oftentimes framed as a bit of a joke, like especially in media, like yeah. male sexuality is always framed as the butt of a joke. The guy can't get it up. We all, you know, cue the laugh track or the guy comes too quickly, cue the laugh track and, and him being shamed by his friends and it being a big, you know, fun, you know, funny comedic kind of event. Um, and so I often see that playing out in the conversations that men have with one another. They, they'll talk about how, how good the sex is in terms of like what their performance looked like. And, um, 
they'll joke with their mates about whether they came too quickly or they didn't last long enough and things like that. So, um, so really changing the culture around the way that men talk about sex is something that I'm really passionate about as well. Mm. I often talk to people in therapy, this particular kind of client group, I suppose, that we're talking about in therapy. I mean, like you said, one of the first things is we unpack kind of ideas about masculinity or the shits about sex, what someone means by sex. But when someone is feeling a bit more confident, we often talk about, I wonder if you said to one of your mates, look, I've been really struggling with this. Um, can I talk to you about it? What would happen? And the amount of times that those conversations have then actually happened with guys and they say, oh, well, yeah, my mate said that they'd struggle too. Or we had mm. a really good conversation or I found it really helpful because it normalises it. And I was on a panel with Ben Bidwell, who was one of my guests in the first series for Mojo at the end of last year. And, and it was basically all about erectile dysfunction and men's sexuality. But I was talking to these three guys afterwards who were a group of best friends. And I honestly left the conversation with them just thinking, God, I wish more people talked like those three. They were all friends from childhood, had clearly an incredibly open relationship with each other, all talked about everything. We're talking about sex and mental health and relationships. And I was with them for probably half an hour. And I left it just thinking, God, like there was just, they had no shame between each other. They were all really supportive of each other. They just acknowledged the highs and the lows and that some things had worked and some things hadn't worked. And I can't even describe it. It left me with such a feeling of that's how... I, I don't even know how to describe it, but that's how I wanted other people to be able to be. It was this sense of, oh, yeah, like those guys have got each other. Mm. And it was just amazing. And I think that one of the biggest side effects for me of struggles with sex is this feeling of isolation. And what we also don't teach people to do is to talk about these things. And I think for men, again, that ties into the vulnerability, the no weakness side of it which is if you're having a problem that you shouldn't share it yeah and we see that suicide is the biggest killer of men under 45 you know i i'm sure that in some way that plays a big part in it and in the uk we have an amazing um campaign called campaign against living miserably calm and i love the posters you know they had these amazing posters which were saying man down not man up and challenging phrases like this that were clearly not helping people because if then you're in a male position and you're being told that when you're having a problem that you shouldn't in any way disclose that, what is the first step to getting help? It's disclosing it in some way in order to help yourself, whether that's to a professional, a friend, you know, your GP, even Googling it. But if the initial step is men shouldn't struggle which is kind of the, or if you're struggling, you just man up, you get on with it, you deal with it. Mm. It's fine for women to show they're emotional, but not for men. Then that is incredibly oppressive and very, just very limiting, you know. And I love the work of Brené Brown and I often talk to actually my, my talk to everyone about her work, but <laughs> to a lot of my male clients, this vulnerability is strength attitude because I also talk to men whether they're in relationships with other men or with women or with people who are non-binary there's this discussion around do you think it's actually best serving your relationship or just serving the person that you're dating with that you can't open up with them 
And the answer is inevitably most of the time, no. Mm-hmm. And there's a limit to the the way that is, the ways that you can connect, the ways that you can be intimate if those walls are all up. And it's just a it's a really you used the word surface earlier. I guess I'm I'm kind of thinking that it's surface again. It's this very stiff, I guess, idea of how I see it, which is we can interact in this way, but we can't go we can't go below the surface. Mm. And so all of this stuff is fine above the water. The stuff that we can see, the stuff that is obvious, but below the surface, not so not so okay for men. And that's really limiting to people. And actually, a lot of the time, I think that younger men particularly come to therapy. It's when they're in this stuckness, it's kind of, okay, I keep finding myself in the same place again and again and again. Or, you know, I work with lots of men, for example, who once they feel intimately connected to someone they start struggling sexually mm. because it all feels a bit too much. And there's this idea of losing yourself a bit or feeling very exposed or that because there is so much pressure to perform that actually that can become intensified when there is a strong emotional connection with someone Yeah, because the fear of disappointing that person... Yeah, you don't want to let them down. Um, ...becomes much bigger if you fall in love with them or if you don't want to disappoint them because you are trying to conceive and you're struggling mm. yeah there's a um there's a um an interesting yeah experience that it's like some of the men that i work with have which is like when they start really like some of these guys that have been in a bit of a longer term relationship and they start to um you know, get married and have kids. Um, that's when they start noticing that, like, their sexuality or their sexual spark with their partner is starting to shift. And, and something that I, that I talk to them about is um, this clashing of roles between their uh, for their partner, really, and what their partner kind of means to them. And so I talk to guys about, like, okay, well, how can you consolidate these two roles? And um, that oftentimes maybe looks like um, exploring the work of polarity from someone like David Data and kind of integrating that in a bit more of a healthier way um, or like creating a little bit of like that energetic sexual chemistry again and that little sexual tension there. And that maybe um, looks like creating just a little bit of distance, not necessarily geographic distance, but like creating a little bit of, uh, you know, um, energetic distance in the sense of, you know, having some time for yourself so that your partner has time for themselves and then coming back to one another and being able to, to, to connect and share that way. Um, and so that's something I noticed quite a lot is like these guys that are, that are a little bit older, been in relationships for a little bit of a longer time, starting to notice that sexual chemistry or that sexual spark has, has, um, has just, has just kind of diminished. And so we talk about like, what are some ways of bringing that back? And, um, and yeah, so part of it is, is that, and part of it, it's like, well, let's talk about, how sexual needs are being met because if for the last 15 years you've been in a relationship you know the only way you've been getting sexual needs met is through penetrative sex right because for a lot of couples that's their only definition of sex that's the only avenue they've got for exploring their sexual needs then that can get pretty dull (laughs) it can get pretty boring Mm -hmm. over time if there's not a lot of variety um and so the the analogy that i use here is the erotic menu analogy which is like you know say you're hungry Um, when you're hungry and you want to satiate your hunger, you choose from a menu, what meal you want to eat. And when you're horny, you want to satiate that horniness or that desire. So you choose from your erotic menu, a quote unquote meal that you want to quote unquote eat. And, um, for a lot of couples, 
when they want to share a meal together, there's only one thing on their erotic menu. And yeah, it might be a great dish. It might even be your favorite dish. But if it's the same meal every single time you're hungry, it gets pretty dull, right? And and also mm. it can kind of cause some issues sometimes if you're really, really, really hungry and your partner just wants a little nibble. What do you do in that situation, right? One person's going to have to compromise and maybe cross a boundary um, if that person you know has to um, eat that big meal with you. So I talk to couples, especially the men that I work with, like about adding things to their erotic menu. Like how else, if you're hungry, what else can you add on there? If you're horny, what else can you add onto your erotic menu that helps satisfy sexual needs? Um, you know, maybe you just want a couple of appetizers. Maybe you don't want necessarily mm. the quote unquote, you know, big meal that you've been having for the last however many years. Um, and so typically that's helpful for guys, especially the guys that I work with anyway, for like broadening their understanding of like how they can get sexual needs met and how they can connect with their partner sexually that doesn't involve necessarily penetrative sex. Um, so we, you know, we, we kind of brainstorm and, and think about some, some other ways. And I'll even get clients to, to make an erotic menu with their partner, like take some photos of themselves or, you know, look up a picture of a sexy massage and stick that on their erotic menu and write down what it is and, and just get them to explore and, and essentially bring some playfulness back into their sexual experiences. A lot of like, because we, we, you know, like you were saying before, a lot of men particularly get really up in their head about like being concerned about whether this is going to be satisfying for their partner or whether they're going to be able to like be perceived as a man or whether they're going to be, you know, a good lover or whatever it is. They are preoccupied with that rather than focusing on just having a good time, just enjoying themselves, mm. just being fun, just being playful, just exploring pleasure. And so I try and bring a little bit of that playfulness that curiosity that experimentation that kind of lightheartedness into the sexual experiences so that it gets these men that i work with out of their head and a bit more just into the moment and just into that you know if it puts a smile on their face and they have a bit of fun with their partner then that's what i'm looking for really um and so i, I have a lot of little games like that i think the play bit is really interesting because for me whether it's anxiety or ideas for example about performance then we stick to the formula which we think is going to work and then if the formula is intercourse then and no one has challenged it bear in mind that a lot of this is happening in the we never talk about sex bubble that the majority of us live in so there is no oh should we address sex or think about how about we unpack our sex life and rebuild it in a different way i mean i can't even imagine that most couples are having that because also once we're in a way of doing it we don't tend to change things so one thing you're saying is about men's kind of sexuality perhaps changing over the lifetime. Hmm. One thing I think is we don't teach people that sex is going to change. But the idea of play and playfulness in sex, which for me, curiosity is one of the best assets we really have to our sex lives, is this idea that that needs an element of encouragement or confidence for people to be able to do it. Because if we have an idea about what sex is, and what we're meant to do as a man in sex and as a woman, and what that is is framed within the intercourse model, then that's what we do because that's what we think we should do and that's what we think, you know, is working. And it takes away the play bit. And as you were saying earlier, much earlier in the conversation, this idea of, okay, well, if I do X, Y, and Z, you know, have an erection, we have intercourse, and then I ejaculate, then job done, success. Mm, mm. But what we also know is that, research has shown that there is an orgasm gap between men and women that is largely because of that model because of the education that we have around sex which is this is what sex is 
that doesn't include foreplay, it doesn't include the play bit, or non-penetrative sex, or pleasure-focused play, which might not have to involve penetration at all, which for lots of people it doesn't. And everyone thinks that's how it should be, so no one challenges it or corrects it. Mm. And actually, in conversations I've had with people, a lot of people's sex lives have changed when they've had a partner who feels confident enough to say, actually, this isn't how I like to do it, or could we do it differently, or could you try something else? And that's not a reflection on you as my partner, but this is how I like to do sex, and it might be different to how you like to do it, or we don't like to do that, or something changes. You know, I've worked with people, for example, who've had spinal cord injuries or accidents where there isn't the possibility of them having sex that the way they've always had sex, or prostate cancer, for example... But what they do is they adapt and they continue to have a satisfying, enjoyable, connecting sexual relationship, which is still as rewarding, is still as satisfactory to them. But they were the people who felt able to adapt that or felt able to be open-minded enough or able, confident enough to step out of the remit of what sex used to be like. And it might be that they've been forced out by mm. an injury, by a physical ability, but they have gone with it and I think it's just so interesting that we see all this stuff kind of tying back into each other and I guess the other side of it that I wanted to make sure that we included in this conversation was the sex education bit is not good enough and we know that across the board so what we then see is that people go to find resources for learning about sex where they can no no guesses uh, no surprises that's the internet and then what we see, for example, in pornography, is in most cases, it is it is changing. We are developing and kind of changing up our styles of pornography. But are these very gendered versions, representations of sex? So then people see that, and it's basically the only version of sex we can really see. Yeah. Um, and that kind of confirms everything we think we know about sex, which is men do this, women do this. This is how it should look. This is how I should look. Mm. This is what I have to do. And I've often described it as non-representative or synthetic. This like synthetic version of sex. And so then we take that into our sexual experiences and kind of copy it in some way, shape or form, both men and women. And then that feeds back in. And until that becomes challenged it's kind of continuing that vicious cycle. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I often say, uh, and like this will sound weird as I say it, but I, I want to explain it is that men think about women's pleasure more than they think about their own. And I know that sounds weird considering we just talked about the orgasm gap. Um, but the way that men think about women's pleasure is wrong. And, and the, the like, all you have to do is like look at mainstream porn, for example, like women's pleasure, or I would say perceived or faked pleasure is what the guys are looking at, right? The, if you're, if a man's watching porn, he's not watching it to see, um, for the most part, the male performer enjoying himself. He's seeing it to, to watch the, the female performer look like she's enjoying herself. And so, um, when, men then translate that as you're saying to the sex they're having they oftentimes will firstly minimize their own experience of pleasure in lieu of gratification like to just get that ejaculation just get that quick you know that quick 
nut. Um, but they'll be, and again, because again, what we spoke about, they're not talking about sex. They're not having these open conversations about like, Hey, this is what I'm into. You know, they're not asking their partners. What do you, you know, how can I help you have an orgasm? How can I help you, you know, explore pleasure? They're going reverting back to that. Oh, I'm the person that's responsible for her pleasure. I'm the person that's responsible for her orgasms. I'm the person that's a, the knowledgeable active participant in sex. She's the passive receptive participant. What I do should make her come as opposed to being like, Hey, tell me how I can be a, the best lover for you. Um, so they're framing pleasure in this really, or they're, play, they're framing her pleasure in this really like non-conducive way. It's not very helpful for her actually experiencing pleasure. And it's, one of the reasons why, at least in the conversations that I've had with women, women feel like they need to fake the orgasms that they're having is because the framework that's been set up is like he is responsible for her orgasms and his ego, right, is wrapped up in that because a lot of guys bring their masculinity and their ego into the bedroom yeah. because they, they- I don't want my partner to feel bad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so a lot of women go, are pretty empathetic and go, well, you know, I, I don't want him to, to you know, get upset essentially. Um, and so they'll, um, yeah, a lot, and like I said, a lot of women have, have spoken to, you know, about this, but they'll pretend essentially, and they'll put on pleasure to help with his, again, perception of pleasure, right? Not necessarily real pleasure, genuine, authentic pleasure, but if she looks like she's enjoying herself, then that's what he is kind of concerned about. So, so like there's this weird, yeah, so this is, I don't know. There's this weird idea that men have about women's pleasure being more important than their own. Um, but but the caveat there is that but men will prioritize their own gratification over everything, right? So that gratification just being an ejaculation. So something that I talk to men about is like to dismantle all of that so that the sex you're having is actually pleasurable for both of you, mutually satisfying, is to firstly come back to how are you having sex with yourself? Like, what does your masturbation look like? What does your self-pleasure look like? Are you goal-oriented when it comes to the sex that you're having, not only alone, but with a partner? Because, you know, we bring this, and this is like a whole different tangent that I'll try not to go on, but I just want to bring it in because I think it's important, is like this capitalistic mindset that we have, which is that we need to constantly be producing something we need to be achieving something we need to be striving towards something and we can't waste our time because rest is for the weak and you know you know that i'll, I'll rest when i when i die kind of mentality um, and so we bring that especially men we bring that into sex and so therefore sex has to produce something sex has to achieve something like it has to have an orgasm or it has to have an ejaculation or it has to have an erection. And if it doesn't produce or achieve those things, then sex is a failure for a lot of men and also for a lot of couples. Well, the model of sex we're taught as well is that sex finishes when a male and female experience. We're taught that when the man finishes, when the man ejaculates, that it's done. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, it's the goal has been achieved, right? And so sex was successful in that regard. Um, and so that's something else that I, a mentality that I kind of work with guys around is like, you know, connect back into your body, not to achieve anything. You know, the, the, the framework that I use with them is like, don't treat your cock like it's got a job to do, right? Because a lot of guys do, they frame their self-pleasure and their masturbation as like literally beating the, you know, their cock, you know, and trying to get something from their cock. They're trying to get an ejaculation. They're trying to get an erection. They're trying to get something from it as opposed to, you know, as opposed to that. Frame it as like you're giving something 
to your cock. You're giving pleasure to your body. You're giving, you know, you're filling it up. You're nourishing it. You're giving back to it. You're saying thank you to it. You know, whatever it is that you want to frame it as, um, it's that reversal of like, okay, how about I, I, you know, um, but I give pleasure as opposed to trying to take pleasure. And then once that kind of relationship with the self has been shifted and the needles kind of been moved in that regard, then I start to go, okay, now, you know, talk to your partner about that. Talk to your partner about what you feel is pleasurable for you, what actually is um, enjoyable for you and, and almost kind of like model to your partner what it's like to open up about sex and sexuality and pleasure. Cause you know, it, it's almost like giving permission in a sense to be like, Hey, it's okay to, to talk about sex and to be open about it and to, to say, this is what turns me on and to say, this is something that I'm into, or this is what I fantasize about. And this is actually not what I'm into. And this is kind of a boundary for me. Like I frame that as sexual leadership for a lot of guys. Like I kind of, I kind of lean on this idea that they're supposed to be the man and they're supposed to like take control and be in charge. And so I kind of like turn that into a, okay, well, if that's the framework that you want to use, then you know, how can, how can you lead from a space of vulnerability? How can you lead from a space of being the example, right? And say, um, so instead of it being like hierarchical leadership, I kind of think of it as um, horizontal leadership and say, and the, the analogy that I use is like, imagine you're diving into a, a lake, right? And you kind of go first, you strip down, you go first, you jump into the lake and uh, you call out to your partner or you, you extend a hand to her and you say, hey, the water's fine. Come on in, come and join me. And um, that's the kind of framework that I use for for guys in terms of stepping into that like sexual leadership or leading by example is like, can you open up and, and invite your partner to come and join you in that that openness? And something I talk about in therapy a lot is, so quite often I work with people when they might have just come out of a relationship and they are wanting to work on their sexual selves before getting into a new relationship or before starting to date again, because sex may in some way have been responsible for the breakdown of the relationship before, or it may have played a part, or there's a kind of want to not carry the sexual challenges into the next relationship or to, to the next person that they're dating. And both men and women I have the conversation with, which is if sex is something that's a bit difficult for you, you have a history of, you know, we're talking about men largely in this conversation, so let's say erectile dysfunction, is I often say to my clients, how do you think it would feel to say to the person that you're dating or your new partner before you have sex or before you go into the bedroom? You know, I just wanted to say that sometimes I struggle with sex a bit or sometimes sex doesn't always go to plan. And if that happens, please don't think that it's anything to do with you or it's anything to worry about. There are loads of ways we can have a good time. Mm. It's just that sometimes my body isn't always on my side or sometimes things just don't always go perfectly and I'm okay with that. All bodies work differently. That's just me. And when I have, or, you know, and like, for example, like the female equivalent is um, clients of mine, whether it's like hormonal or things like um, vaginismus or sexual pain conditions, will say to partners, let's just, I don't want us to be having intercourse or penetrative sex straight away, or that's something that I have to wait a bit for, or takes a bit of time for me, or lube is an absolute must. I always bring it with me, so you don't need to think about that, but just so you know, that's something that I need in order to enjoy sex or to have a, the sexual experience that I need to or for it to be comfortable for me or sometimes sex can be a bit uncomfortable for me and I will need to let you know or communicate that to you. 
but there's lots of things that I do enjoy. And I think even setting that out, you know, lots of the people that I've worked with have come back, having had that conversation. They're like, yeah, no one minds. Mm. You know, if we like each other enough, we still have an enjoyable sexual experience. We still have a good time and we all just go with it. And it starts that conversation early. And I actually often say, if you don't get a, a kind of open reaction to that conversation, that sometimes that can tell you quite a lot yeah. about a partner or that a partner's maybe not ready to you know, you know have that conversation yet and that then they might not be the right partner for you if you're someone that sex has been a bit of a struggle for because you need a partner who can understand that or have the variability or understand the good days, bad days. Mm. And inevitably also what happens then is it takes the pressure off and the pressure that you feel to, it's, it's I don't mean perform, but the pressure that people feel to perform, which we know is a big part of this, is in some way relieved because the expectation is different from the start and inevitably it helps sexual experiences even if they don't go to plan because everyone is like okay cool we thought that might happen Mm. it's not these assumptions and that's the thing is we all assume when stuff doesn't work because we see these messages in films and tv series and you know he's just not that into you (laughs) these kind of messages we all go internal and think okay it's because I'm not attractive enough or they're not attracted to me or what did I do? Or they liked me with my clothes on and then I took my clothes off and they didn't like what they saw. So that must be what's going on here. Mm, mm. And the other partner is thinking, God, um, you know, I've disappointed them. They're not going to want to see me again. I feel like I've let them down. Um, I need to take myself out of the situation or I need to shut this down. I can't see them again now. And we have all this stuff. Whereas if we put it out there in an open way a bit more, and yes, that can feel incredibly scary and, in a way, in therapy, quite a lot of the time we rehearse those conversations. We say, you know, what would you, how would you feel comfortable saying that? Or what would be a script that you can kind of hold in mind for having those conversations? Because it's almost the opposite of what we're taught, which is to go into sexual situations and not talk about it. Everyone should just know exactly what everybody else wants to do and be experts on each other and with some kind of magical mind reading skill know exactly what their partner wants and how they're going to want it and get that right first time done Mm, and mm. that in itself when you logically break it down (laughs) is is completely nonsensical and I say to people you know with every new partner and not just every new partner but partners across a long period of time where you go through different life stages and life changes we are we should be thinking that it's always a unique learning experience and that every partner we have to kind of relearn sex with in some way. But that goes against that historical message and also the historical message that, you know, sex is something that is behind closed doors, private, you know, not seen or witnessed by anyone else and definitely not Mm. talked about. Yeah, I often think that sex is a skill rather than an inherent thing that we, like, should just know how to do. And that's what I'll, I'll talk to guys about is like, you know, you got to practice, you got to practice like learning this skill. And, and I, I think of it as like swimming, you know, like swimming is a skill and there's part of us that's like innately humanly, we kind of know how to keep ourselves alive. If we're flailing around in the water, we can keep our head above water. That's how a lot of us are approaching sex is like, we're not practicing it. We're not talking about it. We're not learning about it. We just kind of go in there and just rely on like, oh, we should just know what to do. And so we just are floundering in the water. Um, but in order to like learn how to be a proficient swimmer and how to be a good swimmer, how to be a good lover, 
you got to learn. You got to, you got to, you know, practice and, and try different strokes and, and, you know, you know ask for f- feedback from a coach or a therapist, right? Someone who can kind of give you that advice. Um, but the way a lot of people are learning about sex is by watching porn, as we said before, or by going online and watching videos and of people having one particular type of sex. And that's kind of like learning how to swim by going and watching a video of someone swimming and, you know, someone swimming in a pretty, uh, you know, let's say in a pretty poor way as well. And, mm. and it's like you know, that it's not conducive for actually having, you know, really, really uh, pleasurable experiences of sex. And, you know, it's something that you said before that I wanted to really um, reiterate and reemphasize is like the power to pivot, right? If you're having a sexual experience and all of a sudden or for whatever reason you maybe lose your erection, being able to go like in the moment, hey, you know, this happens sometimes. It's not you. It's not me. Like there's nothing wrong with this. There's still other things that we can do to explore pleasure. We can use mouths. We can use fingers. We can use feet, toys, other parts of our body. There's still other things that we can do to be sexual with one another, to still explore pleasure. Like the 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 power that holds, like to be a, a lover or a person that can do that is um, – like I don't think can be overstated. Like it's a really powerful thing to, to be able to do. And so I, I, um, mm. I talk to a lot of men about that as well. Um, cause it can be, yeah, it can be a game changer for their, for their sexual experiences and for their partners as well, for their partners to feel safe enough to be like, Oh, he didn't close down when this happened. Mm-hmm. Um, cause a lot of women have, have had experiences where that has happened for their male partner, uh, and they have closed down in those scenarios. And for you to then not do that can be like a really big, light bulb moment for her as well to be like, wow, look at this guy, just feel comfortable in his sexuality and look how open and secure he is in in this. And it can be a really powerful um experience for for women as well. Again, for challenging women's assumptions of what masculinity and male sexuality is as well. That's harkening back to what I was saying before is like not only as are you as a man rewriting your own ideas and understandings of male sexuality and masculinity, but then you're also challenging a lot of your female partner's beliefs about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a sexual man Mm. as well because they'll hold those things. And I think not just female partners but, you know, when there are male-male relationships as well because I often with people say, okay, so when this does happen, for example, let's just say erectile dysfunction, what do you do? And the most common answer that I have historically heard is, oh, you know, I we stop doing everything and I roll over and put my back to my partner because I don't want to look at them. Mm. And so... You know, it it's that pulling away self-protection thing, but then a partner experiences that as a rejection. And so we often talk about how how can you maintain some form of contact, especially like you're just saying there, so that pivot, or how can you, you know, can you continue to touch each other or stay close to each other or just not break? So it's not kind of, okay, this has happened and now we completely pull apart and we separate everything. And that feels like a rupture in some way. Mm. There is one thing I realised we haven't discussed, and I think that, it's rather than about the act of sex, a kind of side of this, this male messaging, which I think is an important part for us to include before we wrap this conversation up, which is also that there feels like there is so much judgment around bisexuality in men. And more, I think, than there is when it comes to women. And I'm aware, I'm aware we this conversation does feel very gendered, um, and I'm not we're not including a lot of conversation around people who are non-identifying or non-binary, but I think this idea of bisexuality in men is something that bisexual men particularly 
struggle with, probably because of what you're saying about this idea of man box culture, it doesn't fit. And I guess, yeah, I guess I just wanted us to unpick that a little bit as well, because there's this idea of maybe it is the man box culture thing. You know, you have to choose or it doesn't fit mm. that that flexibility or that moving between these different states. And also people who are bisexual can be attracted to both men and women at the same time, at different times. We see that there is this whole spectrum of sexualities, but there is a lot of judgment, I feel, and my experience of talking to people aimed at bisexual men. Yeah, so I'll, I'll preface this and say, yeah, again, my, my area of uh, work is with cis-het men for the most part, mm. um, hence my uh, the language that I use typically reflects the, the content that I create, which is around cisgendered heterosexuality um, for men. And so um, there's, I had a really great podcast ages ago with a um, fantastic guest. His name is Zachary Zane, and um, he speaks a lot about – he's a bisexual man, um, and he speaks a lot about bisexuality and the stigma associated with that. Um, particularly one of the stigmas he spoke about, which I remember, was um, the hypersexual stigma of bisexual uh, men yeah. in particular. This, is, this idea that they are – um, really like promiscuous and again it's this idea that like men in general are promiscuous and then you've got like this added promiscuity with regards to um, like being sexually available to all people and then you know, you've got the bisexual stigma in general which is that you know they are greedy or yeah. whatever the the whatever the, the the kind of language is that people use to kind of try and um, be uh pejoratory to walk towards people that are bisexual um but yeah the the um the like something that i've noticed especially for men and for the straight men that i work with at least anyway is like the fear of not being straight mm. and so they try and really cling on to heterosexuality uh and so that inflexibility or that rigidity when it comes to their sexual identity is like something that is really um it's like it's it's a strong defining feature for them, um, and so anything that like you know any sort of sense of attraction towards you know uh, uh, another man or any sort of like fluidity with regards to their sexual experience is seen as this thing that's um, that to be to be afraid of yeah. essentially, and that's in, you know it's an internalized homophobia there, sometimes quite overt homophobia as well, um, and so I do a lot of work with men around that, but. Um, but yeah, so I think there is this, um, this like at least from the heterosexual perspective, this stigma towards gay and bisexual men in particular because of this idea that like heterosexuality needs to be like this really rigid thing, and if it's not this really rigid thing, then there's something wrong with it as well. And um, and I think that like I mean I, I talk to a lot of straight men about prostate play, for example, and I always like get the, always the conversation is at some point. Um, revolves around like, is this going to mean I'm gay? Yeah. Is this going to mean that my sexuality is is you know not what I thought it was? Um, and so it's a yeah, it's a big topic of of conversation, and especially online. If I say you know prostate stimulation for men online, I always will get some troll uh, you know say you know some sort of um, slur with regards to homosexuality, which is um, unfortunate. But I try and I try and educate around it. Um, so yeah, I can't really speak necessarily to bisexuality as a as a um, 
as an experience because it's not something I'm super familiar with. Um, but I can definitely speak to like how straight men would definitely be um, uh, derogatory towards bisexual men for mm. sure. And it ties into that. Uh, it, it all ties back to this version of sex, isn't it? The, the type of sex we should all be having. I'm the UK sex expert for Lilo and they have male sex toys which are largely based around um, prostate play and they sell thousands of them. Absolutely thousands. Yeah. So I'm just going to leave that there for everybody to <laughs> realise that they were made for a reason and there was a huge amount of demand for them. And I think if yeah. we reframe sex to this pleasure-focused model, there's no way, you know, this pleasure pleasure over performance, this pleasure-focused model of sex is so much less judgmental. And I guess that's where I feel like we're trying to, trying to get sex to a place of in, you know, this, this big shift. And I guess... I wanted to close this conversation off. We talked about essentially a lot of what we've talked about as well as this idea of toxic masculinity, isn't it? Which is that we, I mean, toxic masculinity is defined as the traditional cultural masculine norms that can be harmful to men, women, society overall. And I believe that also this whole man box culture, you know, all of this stuff is entwined. I don't think it serves anyone. And I guess I'm also thinking about this as a mother of boys is how do we detoxify how can we all be better and i think this is a point for everybody yeah yeah i am um, look i don't really resonate with the term toxic masculinity because i don't think it does a very good job of defining the cultural like um experience of masculinity that a lot of men experience mm. you know and so I, that's why i prefer man box culture um and that idea more so than um, the term and the phrasing toxic masculinity and also toxic masculinity the phrasing has been co-opted by a bunch of people um, that are you know trying to say that masculinity is toxic and it's that's just not the way the phrasing is meant to be interpreted mm. but i digress um that's for a, it's another, a, another conversation, conversation itself isn't it <laughs> yes for sure um but the the uh i guess the approach to this is kind of similar to what we're what we're doing right is to like um to help that you know to essentially to open that box to open that man box right to be like look these these rigid walls that you think are defining masculinity aren't actually so rigid and i often think of like the logical fallacy the no true scotsman logical fallacy it's like you know if this is what it means to be a real man right and it's xyz i can guarantee you that even if you find someone who fits those xyz's in that moment that you meet them that they don't always fit that xyz model there's going to be times in their life where they don't actually fit that so they're not actually a real man because there's no such thing as a as a quote-unquote real man um because no one can all the time 100 percent of the time fit those whatever definition of a real man is so um it's just it's fallacious reasoning so um so i think that's that's the that's the work and that's the work that i'm at least trying to do anyway is like try to um try to offer alternative expressions of masculinity. Like I often talk about this idea that masculinity isn't monolithic, that there isn't one masculinity, that there are masculinities. And it, you know, when people talk about, oh, you know, traditional masculinity is under attack. I'm like, well, what, like what traditional masculinity, whose traditional masculinity is under attack, right? Because that phrase traditional masculinity is under attack is like presuming that masculinity is like one way essentially like white hegemonic monolithic masculinity is what they're talking about and um and it's like well you know 
there's plenty of other traditional masculinities which are a lot more open and a lot more expressive and a lot more nurturing and a lot more compassionate than the masculinity that you're talking about. So why aren't those masculinities quote unquote under attack? So again, it's just like, oh, I'm going to go on a huge rant if you let me go on this, but I won't. Um, it's, it's, I, it feels very like self-victimization, um, you know, and, and playing the victim. But again, that's a whole another conversation that I could get into um, at a later date. Um, so yeah, my, my, my strategy, I suppose, for this is just like exploring different masculinities, talking about different masculinities, the way that it isn't this rigid construct that it is there. There's a lot more fluidity. There's a lot more openness that there's other ways that you can show up as a man. And that doesn't mean anything less about you as a man for you to show up those ways. So just getting rid of that rigid idea or that rigid ideology when it comes to masculinity has been something that's really helpful for me. And it's been really helpful for the men that I've worked with. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sexual Wellness Sessions. If you'd like to join us for more conversations, you can click subscribe on either Apple or Spotify podcasts. And if you have a moment, please leave us a review.